You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning. It is good to be back. It is good to not be sick. Last week, uh, down and out, you know. Anybody get that thing where it just knocks you completely out? And I came to church Sunday morning, like, I'll just power through it. I'm just doing offering. Blake's preaching. And I almost passed out on stage doing the offering and uh, thought I should go home. So I did. So it is good to be back. It's good to be healthy again. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Acts. I'm taking a slight detour from Jonah because I can. And we will be in the book of Acts, chapter 11. Uh, We'll be back to Jonah next week. I want to share with you the vision that I have shared little snippets of since I came back from Ecuador, but the word that God has given me for this church and for you specifically. If you're in here this morning, you're part of this vision. If you don't want to be a part of it, you can leave. We'll, we'll go ahead and we'll play some music and you just get up and walk out. No one will notice, but we will judge. Very, very judgy. Um, no, no, this vision's about you. This vision is about the people of LifePoint and the community that we live in and uh, taking the status of what LifePoint is and what it means to its community and changing it to one where the community couldn't imagine what it would be like without us here. Rather than being like, I think there's a church in Copper Basin. It'll be, I know there's a church, and the people who attend there are amazing. I've got to start going. I want to go there. I want to know more about why they do what they do. That's part of the vision. And so what we're going to look at here this morning is the book of Acts. But during first service worship, Uh, First service worship, in case you're wondering, we play hymns. It's fantastic. We did Old Rugged Cross. How many people know Old Rugged Cross? On the old, yes. So if you want that, you got to wake up early, come at 8 o'clock. Old Rugged Cross is my first memory of a worship song that really touched me. I was 8 years old, I believe, third grade. I was going to a Christian Baptist school, tiny school. There were 8 people in my grade. And... We would have chapel, and then we also went to that church. It's the church my grandparents grew up in. And I remember one chapel, and then on Sunday morning, they said they had special music. And this older gentleman, which I was eight at the time, so he could have been 30, but I'm pretty sure he was more like 70 or 80, which isn't old. I've been told is not old. Um, You're just festively aged. And so um, 70 or 80 years old, and he, he was hunched over this far. And it took him no less than two minutes to walk from his seat up front onto the stage, to the podium, to grab the mic. And he walked out to the front. And he, said, Ugh. he just looked out and acapella sang Old Rugged Cross from memory. As an eight-year-old kid, it was amazing. That's the first time I can remember being moved by the spirit in a song. Because I could see in this guy the weatheredness, the beaten down, what life had done to him. You could tell that he has not had an easy road, and yet he sang this song with this deep, gravelly voice with so much passion and heart for who what God was. It touched and, and meant so much to this little eight-year-old kid sitting there and thinking, how is it this guy could sing so passionately about this God who I've only known about for a few years and don't know much about him at all? And so we got to sing that song here this morning, and Terry did an amazing job with it. And uh, while we were singing, I felt like the Lord bring this word to me. And so I brought it to first service, and I know we didn't sing Old Rugged Cross, but I'm going to bring it to you 
as well here this morning. And before I bring it, I want to start with the parable of the prodigal son. You know the parable of the prodigal son, right? Kid gets his uh, section of his dad's uh, inheritance, of his inheritance from his dad, goes out into the world and squanders it on everything. Money, uh, rock and roll, women, all of the stuff that you could possibly find pleasure and hope in and wastes it, finds himself in a pigsty and says, even the servants in my father's house live better than this. I will go back home, beg for forgiveness, and see if he'll let me be a servant. That's the story of the prodigal son. The part of the prodigal son that we don't spend a lot of time on is the older brother, because he had a brother, the Bible tells us. And as he's coming home, his father runs out to him, throws the coat on him, puts the signet ring on his finger, throws a party for him and says, my son has returned. What was lost is now found. And the older brother looks and says, you have got to be kidding me. How in the world does he get this kind of reception when he took half your wealth and went and squandered it? He spat in your face. And here I have been this whole time staying faithful to you. Do you know the story of the prodigal son is actually a picture of the Jew and the Greek? Did you? The Jew in the story is the older brother. The one that had always been with God, the one that had been God's chosen, the one that had been God's people, and the Greek represents all of those who are out in the earth finding pleasure and hope and life through the things that this world has to offer, through the promises that this world has to offer. And so when God brings in and allows in the the prodigal, the world, non-chosen people, non-Jewish people, He opens his heart and says, for those who were lost are now found. And exactly what happened was the Jewish people or the older brother in the story said, well, what about us? Look at all the good we've done. We never left. We never squandered your wealth. And the father, what does the father say to the older son? You have always been here and you have always had access to anything that is mine. But it was your brother who was lost and now he's found see, it's two different types of sins, and we often look at the sin of the prodigal son, and we say, that's a pretty bad sin, going out in that kind of lifestyle and, and to disrespect your, your, your father and the inheritance that way. It's, that's not good. And we look at the older brother's sin, and we kind of relate to it, maybe. I've worked hard. I've been a good person. I haven't stolen anything or killed anybody, and I've wanted to, but I haven't. So you're welcome, God. I've done this because I love you. And we look and then we, we wonder why. Why do we see blessing poured out on the prodigal, on the person who has just messed up so badly? Maybe they've messed over your life and it's hard for you to even look at them. And now they're being blessed and all you feel is the oppression of life coming upon you. And you look and you say, where is my party? Where is my fatted calf or lamb that has been slain for me? Where is the coat for me and all I have done? And here's why the sin of the older brother is more dangerous than the sin of the younger brother, because the older brother is blind to it. He has, in his time with the father, relied on his actions and his moral thinking, and in himself has become his own God, his own leader of the household. Because he's earned it. He's worked hard. He's earned it. He deserves it. Whereas the prodigal in the pigsty that life will bring you with all of its promises of glory, looks and says, I have nothing. And I need 
the Father. I need the Father. I have nothing. And the word that God brought to me this morning during that lovely song was repentance. Repentance. And I felt like what he was saying is, I have children, sons and daughters in this room this morning who need to repent because my relationship with them is broken. Not because they're evil, not so they can get into heaven because they're going to hell right now. They need to repent so they can be back into a relationship with me. My, my, my sons who stayed home, my daughters who stayed home, who are angry with me, who are frustrated with how I've, how I've answered or not answered things in their life, they need to repent. They need to come before me and say, heal our relationship. And then those who are out doing things they know are hurting them, they know hurt my heart, they need to repent. And so I know you usually save something like this for the end of the service. I've been in church long enough to know how that works. We're going to do it right now. I want to take a moment. We're not going to turn the lights down or call the band out. It's going to be weird and awkward. So if you're here for the first time, sorry, we do this occasionally. Weird and awkward, that is. We're just going to have a moment of silence. And wherever you're at, I encourage you, bow your head. The Lord wants more than anything a heart of repentance because the heart of repentance is what brings relationship. Did the father run out to the prodigal son and throw him a party because he wasted all of his money and lived in sin? No. He threw him a party because he repented and came back humbly and said, here I am. Here I am. And so this morning, before we even go on with the idea of vision, I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to do the same thing. We're just sit down. It's going to be quiet. Let's just take a moment, wherever you're at. Bow your heads before the Lord and talk to him. Maybe there's something in your heart you've been holding back or, I don't know. The Lord just said repent. So let's do that. Scriptures say, renew a right spirit within me. And that's what I felt like God was telling me just now, that as my sons and daughters come before me and repent, I will renew a right spirit within them. I said it was important for you to do this because the message is future-focused and the truth of the matter is, unless we have men and women who have returned home to the Father, 
Or we have men and women who have stayed home with the Father but have held on to things that they are frustrated about, bitter about, angry, discontent with. We aren't going to be able to reach out to the people in our neighborhood and love them the way God has given us vision for. We won't. This is just a small step to hear this morning. So this word, this vision is something I presented to our elders after I got back in November from Ecuador. I'd spent a few weeks praying and it wouldn't leave me alone in journaling and writing and I don't journal or write. <laughs> and so I presented it in December to our elders and said, what do you think about this for 2019? And laid out before them. I said, it's going to require a lot more of you. You won't just be a financial overseer. You won't just be a programs overseer. It won't be just one meeting a month. As an elder of the church and how I saw the church run in Ecuador, which my heart just leaped for joy with, it's going to require more from you. Are you okay with that? Is this something you want to be a part of? So we got back together in January, and the elders who are on our board are incredible men, and they said, yes, we're on board. We're part of it with you. We'll stand with you in this. We'll take on more responsibility. And so then in January, I presented it to the staff and the pastors, and we sat down for a couple hours one afternoon, and I shared my heart with them and then gave them time to just ask questions, any questions they had, and said, decide if you want to be on board with this because it's going to require more of us. And so here I am today. They said, yes, we're on board with it. And so here I am today sharing it with you. This has been the part I've been most excited about, is to be able to take this heart, this vision, and share it with every one of you and say, would you jump on board with us in this? You see, the thing that I saw in Ecuador which was so powerful to me was a church leadership unified, unified under the cause of making Christ known to their community, bar none. Now, lots of churches say that. Lots of us love that tagline. Of course we want to make Christ known to the community. What community? Well, the one that showed up here today. Well, what about the 10,000 other people in Copper Basin who didn't show up here today? Well, yeah, we got the signs up. They can see the signs and come in. They're free to come in. Anyone's welcome. And it's funny because we would never actually say that, but that's sort of how we operate church, and that's how church has been done for so long. And so when I was called at 18 years old by the Lord to be a pastor, and he made it clear that this was his calling for me, I said, I can't do it because I'd spent enough time in the church uh, um, seeing the behind the scenes of the church and seeing how it worked. And I said, God, I don't want any part of that. I've seen how church works, how churches work. And then at 16, I went and did my first mission trip, and then I went overseas and down to Mexico and I saw how God was working there and I said, God, I want more, I want this, I want this kind of church. And the Lord said, okay, I'll give you a chance to do that kind of church. And I said, no, that's okay, I'm going to go into business and I will fund other people who want to do that kind of church. And God said, that's sweet, you're going to do it. And so, he, you know, 10 years ago, he called me out of my delusion and into my calling and here I am. Acts 11. Acts 11, 19 through 30. This is where we really see the church get off the ground in a place called Antioch. So I'll have it on the screen here. I think I'm reading out of the net version if you have a phone. 
Acts 11, 19 through 30 says this, to those who had been scattered by the persecution that was in connection with Stephen, they had traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message of the Messiah, Jesus, only to the Jews. Remember the persecution of Stephen was Stephen, the Jewish convert who was stoned to death by who? The Jewish religious leaders, and it was overseen by who? Saul, who is Paul, who we know as Paul. And so what the writer, what Luke is saying here is that after that had happened, all the other believers were like, we are going to get killed if we stay here. So they scattered and they went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they would share the message of the Messiah, but they would only share it with other Jews. Then some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch. And Antioch is huge. It's a massive city there in Rome, and it is one of the central civilizations. It's a melting pot of cultures because of its location. You've got people from Asia, from Africa, from Europe. Um, You had Syrians coming up from the east, and it was just everybody would come into Antioch, and there was no one culture. There was no one uh, formal belief in Antioch. I've shared about that before. And they began to speak to the Greeks, telling them the good news about Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. Pay attention to that. It's so important to pay attention to that. If the Lord's hand is not with you in ministry, you better get out of whatever you're doing. Because no matter how good your intentions are, it's going to be bad. The Lord's hand was with them. And what happens when the Lord's hand is with you? A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas, you got to get down there. These men are preaching to the Greeks, and it's catching like wildfire. I can't believe it. The word paganus means countryside or outside or pagan. They're, they're coming to the Lord, and they have no history of Yahweh. They have no history of our law. They have no history of the prophets, and yet they're coming, and they're giving their life to Jesus. Barnabas, you've got to get down there and see this. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord, with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and, what is that? A great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember him? When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. There it is again, great numbers. The disciples were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus, and he stood up and through the Holy Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world, and this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea because of this famine, and they did this by sending their gifts to the elders and by by doing this through Barnabas and Saul. This is amazing because how we relate this section of Scripture to our life now is exactly how I saw the church in Ecuador relating the idea of spreading the gospel. See, we often think of church this Sunday morning as our chance to come and get filled up and that Christians come to church, and yes, there is a smattering of unbelievers in here probably, But let's be honest, 90% of us are Christian. We've already said the prayer. We've been in church for a while. We've gone to small groups. Maybe we volunteered. And that's church. We give it one hour a week. 
maybe an hour, 15 minutes, if we're incredibly gracious, like you all are for me, because he likes to talk. An hour. Just think about this. An hour, one hour, a week. We give football four, if it's your team. But then you got to pregame it and postgame it, so it's more like seven. What if we pregame church? Like, what if some guys got here at 6 a.m., tailgates down, there's barbecue? They're like, what are you doing? We're just pregaming church, man. I can't wait to get in there. I don't know what's going to happen. Think, right? I gave some of you an idea. You're like, I'm going to totally pregame next. What if church was never meant supposed to be this? This, if you look in the book of Acts, how they were doing it to those Greeks in Antioch, how they were sharing Christ, is those men were getting up on Saturday, typically. They were getting up and they were speaking from a central square. And people from all over the area were gathering around and saying, what's this guy talking about? People from every denomination, every background, every class, every... uh, Wealth, every, every bit of socioeconomic background, right? It didn't matter. People were all gathered together to listen about this Messiah, this Jesus. This God who, like no other God that was around and no other God who has ever been, actually came down to his people, died on their behalf, and they no longer have to work to gain entrance into his sacrifice, but he has already made the way. And what is so crazy about that, okay, so here's the thing. If that doesn't just totally blow you away, then it's because we often don't have a clear understanding of God. So we're, um, we're getting some new carpets installed in our house because we're moving far away. I'm just kidding. Johnson Ranch. And so we could not sell our home with our current carpets because it's a health violation with the children and what they have done to it. I thought a dog was bad in our old house. Children are much worse. And the girls' room, worse than my son's room. Um, anyway, so the carpet guy comes out, and he is a salesman at heart. This guy talks fast, likes what you like. Um, boom, boom, boom. Just going at it. And then he goes, what do you do? I go, I'm a pastor. Youth pastor? No, okay, I get it. No, I'm the senior pastor. <laughs> Aren't you a little young for that? Yeah, I get that a lot too. Thank you for continuing to judge me, sir. Well, no, that's cool. That's cool. This is what he said. He goes, I've lived all over the world, man. I know all about God. I lived in Japan, learned about Buddhism and Shinto. I lived down in the South. I was at a nice little Baptist chair with my first wife. I'm on my third wife now. And then I lived up in the Midwest and had a nice little Presbyterian church. And out here, I've gone and done the Catholic thing a few times. So I'd like to say I know a lot about God. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, obviously, you must know all there is. And it was one of those moments where you're like, nope, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. It's, it literally won't go anywhere. So I just had to enjoy the moment. Here's the thing, though. If somebody says they know all about God, and yet they have nothing to do with Jesus, they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know anything about Jesus. They know a lot about religion. And that's true. There is a lot of religion in this world. And I can give you all sorts of history and we can learn all sorts of cultural lessons about how religion has related to culture and how it has shaped culture. But Jesus Christ is not religion. 
He is not just another God that we need to appease. He is a relationship builder. He is one who came down into his creation, humbled himself beyond what any other belief system has done, and said, I will make the way for you. Instead of you climbing to the top of the mountain, I will come down from the top, and I will bring you with me. That's, that's, you can go all over the world, and unless you hear that truth, you haven't heard it. All you've done is heard about another religious belief. And so, here's the thing. When people see Life Point Church planted a mile back from the main road in the middle of this community, they assume, much like my carpet salesman did, oh, I already know what they're about in there. I know what they're about. I see it. I see it on the news. They're all conservatives. They all don't want uh, people coming up from south of the border. They give you all the things that they want. They just want to keep themselves to their own little bubble. I'm probably not even welcome in there. I bet they're going to tell me my, I'm sinning if I told them what I did last night. I don't want that. I don't, want, I don't need that. And I know that's what's going on because people who don't attend here, who live in this, have given me those exact quotes. And so... As I get back from Ecuador and I'm praying and I'm saying, God, how can we be different? How can we look more like this church? God begin to open up and show me and reveal. And a big part of that is it starts with leadership, which is why I went to the elders and the pastors and the staff first to get their buy-in and say, are you ready to work harder this year? Are you ready to be more invested? Are you ready to care more? Because... We're only a small part of it. From, from us, it will disseminate and go out. But here's the thing that's crazy about Sunday mornings in Ecuador. The main church in Cuenca has 2,000 people that show up Sunday mornings. The 12 church plants that are throughout the poorer regions of Ecuador have anywhere from 300 to 2,000 showing up at their churches. And on any given Sunday, they average 30 to 40 first-time salvations. Every Sunday. Not just like Salvation Sunday, not bring your neighbor Sunday, every single week. 30 to 40 new people are giving their life to Christ. Well, how's that even possible? How did 30 or 40 new people come to the church and find it? How is that possible? Do you have an incredible marketing program, I asked the senior pastor. I said, do you just spend a ton of money on marketing? Do you have people who just bust people in and they don't know where they're going? They think they're going to a movie. Gotcha, you're at church. Like, how do you do it? Do you trick them into this? He said, no, our people bring them in. The members. He said, church for our people in Ecuador, it doesn't happen on Sunday morning. It happens throughout the week. It happens in their small groups and in their communities and the relationships they have with other believers. They meet a couple times a week in each other's homes. They watch each other's kids. They're doing life together. They study the message from Sunday together every week. They pray over one another. That's church for the believer. Sunday morning is for the unbeliever, is what he said. Sunday morning is for the unbeliever. Yes, we have plenty of people who know God in our church Sunday morning, obviously. But our focus and our intention on that day is to capture the mind and the heart of the unbeliever, not just through the words that we speak, but through our actions. You see, when we have a congregant who has spent all week serving and loving their neighbor who doesn't know who Jesus is, and then that congregant invites him to church, and that we share a message of who Jesus is and how he's different than every other belief system, guess what? They put two and two together. And they go, 
this is why who he is, what he's done in your life, this is why you do this? Yes, because I love him so much. I love you. And I'll sacrifice my time, my money, my convenience for you. You know, in New York City, the population is 100 people per acre. Can you believe that? Like, we think our homes are close out here, and they are. You can, like, reach out and touch your neighbor, literally, from your window. 100 people per acre in New York. But 98% of the living structures in New York are seven, uh, seven stories or taller. Seven stories. So we just stack you up in New York. And that's how they fit so many people into an acre. In Rome, in Rome, it was 300 people per acre. And guess what? No high rises. In Antioch, where this is taking place, 200 people per acre. Twice as many people per square inch as our current day New York, which is one of the most densely populated areas in our country. And so not only did you have sickness because they didn't have proper sanitary uh, and uh, toilets or anything like that, so you had lots of sickness, but if you were sick or crippled in an area so densely populated in the most wealthiest, most well-rung civilization of its time or just about any other time, Rome, they took those people and threw them on the streets to die. And then people would come along and collect the dead bodies after they writhed in the street. The Christians went out, they picked them up, and they brought them into their home. And they nursed them back to health. And in the process, they shared who this Messiah is. We don't have that situation anymore. We actually have a much more dire situation. Because we have people who, much like the older brother in this parable of the prodigal son, don't think that anything's wrong with their life. They're living in filth. They're sick. They're sick. They don't know Jesus. There is a cancer growing inside them called sin that all of us have but they have no idea it exists. Whereas the sick person who was thrown in the street and left to die instantly sees the grace and the mercy of the Christian brother or sister who brought them in, and then when they hear that the reason they did it is because of this Jesus who did it for them first, they say, okay, yes, I want that. But when you don't even know you're sick, you don't know that you need the medicine. And so you look at the church when you drive by it here in Copper Basin and all of our signs, and you say, I don't need that. I don't need that now. Typically, we'll get people in here who have never been in here but lived in the community for years when something goes really bad in their life because now they realize they're sick. Friends, my vision for us is twofold, maybe three or four, but certainly two, is it's going to take every single person in here to lay down their life and say, I want to be a part of a church like that. I want to love my neighbors like that. I don't want the pastors to do it and then come in and see people in my church. I have to do it. I have to take personal accountability and responsibility in my own life, in my own home, with my own time. And that starts with what we're going to be starting this fall. Remember I said that church for, in Ecuador was Monday through Saturday. It was throughout the week. Right now, our current small group and volunteer engagement is about 30 to 
which is pretty par for the course for an American church. About a third of the people serve or are involved in a small group. Our goal by this fall, as we talk and as we prepare your hearts and prepare leaders to rise up and, and open their homes, is to be at 85% minimum. Minimum 85. The church in Ecuador, 98% of the people who are members of that church are involved in a small group throughout the week. 98%. Because that's where life happens. You heard Justin talk up here with his wife, Rachel, who didn't talk. We've just brought her up here because Justin's difficult to look at. But the point is, I know, he knows it. Their lives were changed by their small group. And I know the story, and I know the people in their small group. And I know how people in their small group have fallen on incredibly hard times. And the group that is, was around them rallied around and was there for them financially, was there for them with their time, was there for them with their kids, was there for them with jobs. And I've asked those couples, what would you do without your small group? They said, I don't know. It saved us. They go deeper into the scriptures together. When they're struggling in their marriages, they meet together. As we're missing it in the American church that we believe this is church, that we believe that this is what we give God, and then I will try to do my devotionals throughout the week, and then I'll get back on Sunday. We're missing it. And I'm sorry if I'm coming a little hard this morning, but this has been like obviously stirring inside me for a while. And so I need you to pray about it. Obviously, you don't need to go out and be like, all right, run out the place crazy and go knocking on doors. But I need you, I need you to say, yeah, I see it. I get it. I want to be a part of doing more like that. I want to be a part of it. And it's going to require moving your schedule around. And it's going to be inconvenient. I promise it's going to be inconvenient. And you're going to think, I don't have the energy or the time. And I promise, if you make the energy and the time, God gives you the energy and the time. Call it a miracle. <laughs> Call it supernatural. The Lord opens up doors in your life. So in this whole thing, right, I tell, we're talk, I'm talking with God. We know this is where we're going. A big thing they do in Ecuador is they're connected to the political leadership. They're connected to people who have influence and power, and they come alongside them and say, how can we help? We're here to help you. We're here to love on your community. We want to see the community grow just like you do. How can we help? And in the process, have brought over a dozen political leaders, governors, mayors, um, elected uh, vice presidents over entire cities there to Christ through what they've done. So here's what's crazy. I get back here, and in January, the Lord starts opening up doors for me and the staff here. And I start meeting with elected officials and people here in Pinal County, which in five years I've been out here, I've never done. I didn't even seek out these meetings. God said, you want to do this? Okay, here you go. Here's a meeting. Here's another meeting. I have one tomorrow. Here's another meeting. God's opening the doors for us to be a place that people see us, that they could not imagine life without life points because of what we mean to our community. We're not just a group of people who get together once a week and clog up their streets or play our music outside loud and the people who back up to us, we hear about that. These are people who genuinely love us. I don't know why, but they genuinely love us and they show it in all of these ways. Doesn't that sound exciting? Doesn't that sound like something that would be worth being a part of? That's what who God is. That's what I want to be a part of. I'm telling you. Let's do it. Pray about it.
You're going to need God's help. You, you aren't going to muster up the ability to do this. You're going to need God to, to say, God, be in this with me. I want to do this. I want to be a witness to my neighbor, to my coworker, family. And he'll be with us in this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I thank you for this morning, and I thank you that your spirit is here. I thank you for repentance, Lord. I thank you that as we spent time here, sons and daughters this morning came back to you. They came back where the relationship was broken. They said, forgive me, Lord. I'm sorry for where I've been. I understand what I have done. What a powerful time. God, as we move forward in this as a church, we repent of making this about us, of making this about comfort, of making this about a value it adds to us. But God, this place exists so that we can reach more people who are lost, so that we can love people who are hopeless, so that we can take the people who are filling that void with alcohol and drugs, who believe suicide is an option, God, by letting them know there is such a better way. And it's free. You've given it freely with the gift of Christ on the cross. So Lord, make us bold. Give us courage. You don't ask us to do this on our own. You said, when I go, I am sending one, a comforter. And you will do even greater things than you have seen me do. God, we, we ask for that here. If, if your hand is on this ministry, if your hand is on this place, we will see a great number of people brought into the fold. People who love you and love others. So help us in this, Lord. We're going to take communion here. We do communion every week because we're gathered together and when Christ was with his disciples, he gave a commitment. He said, whenever you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. And he took bread and broke it and as they had all eaten it, he told them, this is my body broken for you. And they didn't quite understand it. Then he took the cup and they passed it and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you come together, would you do this in remembrance of me? So there's two cups stacked, one on the other. We have three stations up front and three in the back spread out. You can go to whichever one's closest to you. The only requirement we, is, we ask is that you have a relationship with Jesus. I don't care about your denomination or background, but have a relationship with Jesus. Because the whole purpose of this is to remember what the cross was and what it means to you and what it means to that relationship. So without that relationship, it makes no sense. If you want to know what it means to take communion, why we ask that, you can come and talk to one of our prayer partners up front. You can talk to me. You can talk to a pastor afterwards. If you're somebody here this morning who wants to give your life to Christ and you just never have, you've been on the fence about it, come forward. Come talk to one of our prayer partners up front here. Let's pray and bless this, and then we'll get up and take communion, have a moment of silence in your seat, and we'll close in worship together. Father, we pray a blessing over the bread and the juice. That without you and without the cross and the sacrifice and the tomb and the resurrection, God, it would just be bread and juice. But as you sat with your disciples, you said, this is my body and my blood. And so we receive it unto ourselves here today as a reminder that we are not our own, God. We are yours. And I am so grateful for that reality that truth. In Jesus' name.
Amen.